experiment for everybody. Four o'clock might not be the best time, but it's all good. Is it? You like it? It's good. It's right in the middle of my nap time. That's it. It's, it's me and my emotions are getting a little angry at each other, but that's okay. Fine. So, on a show of hands, uh, um, don't don't put your hands up. But how many people? No. I. Well, actually, no. I need some kind of response. Like I've been enjoying the book a little bit. It's good. So far, I've tried to connect with lots of uh, ones here, uh, just at the different kind of responses. It's a good book. Do you really enjoy it? It's something. Uh, and so far, 100% of the emotions uh, that I already told you about before uh, have already happened. So I was spending time with one uh, person here. I uh, said that he literally had the experience of wanting to chuck it across the wall. In the next minute, it's kind of like, you know what? This is pretty emotional. It's pretty connective. Uh, so there's lots of good stuff in it. Uh, and we'd like books that are on a uh, easy level to engage with. So we'll do our best. Uh, so just so you know, I felt like uh, I felt like a check from the Holy Spirit. I had fun songs and I had a bunch of like funny video clips and and then I felt like we might go to wrong places too quickly uh, because uh, tonight or this afternoon uh, we're going to talk about going under the covers and uh, and so I wasn't going to show any really detailed pictures. Uh, but I was going to definitely uh, get some movie clips that would kind of show pervading culture uh, and uh, show just different TV shows that have... Uh, this is like a constant research project for Maddie and I uh, because God explains that uh, sex is part of his design. Uh, and yet, and the world is sex-crazed. And so something that Maddie and I have never shied away from exploring, trying to learn about, uh, and, uh, and, and really like just interviewing like all sorts of different couples from all walks of life, uh, both like even divorced couples, things like that. It's like this constant project that we've been studying for a very long time. Uh, and I'll tell you a bit of that, uh, that uh, a bit of the story behind how I got, um, how, we, how we kind of went into a different kind of level or world, whatever you want to call it, whole different reality, that would be a better way. Uh, of describing it. So really hope you're enjoying the book. Uh, there's a lot of really good uh, safety conversations, the way that Mark Driscoll lays it out in the book. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, and specifically, he pulls from a lot of my favorite authors. Uh, and by pulls, you could say maybe he took some of it. No, I'm just joking. Uh, if you know the pervading joker now. But anyways, uh, but, but some of my favorite authors find themselves in a book in a condensed way in word choice language that's very accessible. So after this conversation uh, today, you might want to look at that later. Uh, and uh, if you haven't already read it, uh, it's a continual, constant, frank kind of conversation that you need to have uh, at every level. And so the stuff that we're going to talk about today and the stuff that we want to uncover uh, together, even as a church, in, as uh, godly couples are coming together in life and in love, demonstrating the gospel picture. Uh, there is no greater picture in the world of the gospel and the love that Christ has than marriage. That's what he compares it to. Apparently, that's what the design was from the beginning. That the gospel was centered in marriage. So there's not a greater picture. A lot of people will say the love of a mother for a child is a greater picture. Or the love of, of somebody for uh, their son. Or they, they'll say lots of other different pictures will come out. But the picture the Bible says 
uh, is one of marriage. It says the way that marriage was designed and built to be is the picture uh, that we are to uh, move towards. And when we're out of alignment with it, we don't say, well, I guess I'm disqualified from it. Rather, we go, okay, how can I align myself with the biblical picture? And we don't ever move from like, we don't ever stay in one spot. We're constantly changing and shifting. And the way our bodies and chemistries work, it moves and it grows. And it's, it's, it's a whole different world. Uh, and so unpacking those kind of things would be incredible. But remember, the foundation of this whole thing is to just get us face-to-face, having a good conversation. Uh, and we'll give you some thoughts, feedbacks, try to begin some of the vulnerability kind of tracks that we're on. Uh, and remember, um, this is a big foundation for this whole course uh, or this whole session or project or whatever. Um, this never helps our marriage by us teaching anybody else. It always costs us something. Uh, and so it's always something where we're going, well, we feel like we need to no matter what, no matter what happens, uh, because it's, it's just good information that like we wish we knew at one time and we wish that it was just more of a commonplace culture at one time. Uh, and so this is, this, we don't like, there's no, I don't get a lot of joy from teaching this stuff. I'm not trying to build anything. I'm not writing a book right now on it. There's not, I'm not trying to get anything from you. I feel like in our church, we want to support marriages. So we just wanted to splash into this and go, let's just get some support out there rather than make it all like super technical and, and, and make it too ornate and too inaccessible for people. Because a lot of times I find that the, a lot of books get very inaccessible. They get way too wordy. It's too many projects. And then you start thinking that everybody has these little perfect lives. I, like, I, read, I read many, many, many books on this. Uh, and I started then following on their Twitter account um, some of these men that were writing these books and I started calculating how often they were actually home because they always said, well, I have my date night here and my morning breakfast here and have this here. And I'm like, unless you're traveling, <laughs> then you're not home. <laughs> right? So, cause it gives for me, I go, Oh, that's perfection. I'll make it happen. And I just like start lining myself up and then you start realizing nobody can hit that. Nobody hits the consistency. Everybody has to work with what you've got. Now, there's standards. There's stuff to shoot for. And even in shooting for it, even if you miss, you're going to end up being enriched for it. So what I want to do right now is just pray. Uh, very excited to be here with you guys uh, and for us to just give this sacred time. Uh, and then we're just going to play a little video clip, help frame a bit more of what we do. Uh, and uh, and we'll, we'll move from there. So... Oh, wonderful Lord Jesus, we thank you for today, and we thank you that all that we're going to talk about today was in your design, your purpose, your plan, and for your pleasure, and our pleasure, and your glory. We trust you right now. Jesus, I know there's so many different walks of life represented in this room, and pray you bless those that aren't able to be here tonight. We love you, and we just ask that you would be glorified in this time. Be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. Here we go. Turn your awkward attention this way. Biblical view of sex and marriage is one filled with delight, beauty, and honor. In our world, it's filled with brokenness, pain, and shame. The biblical view is so for sex and sex being something enjoyed in marriage that young men in the old testament were given a year off from the army 
in order for them to enjoy and be happy with their wife. They were even excluded from public service for a year. Proverbs begins to explain what that enjoyment looked like, talking about stuff that would make most people blush, being filled with delight and being intoxicated with the love of your wife. And so many people go, well, it must not be true of me, or it must not be the way that God intended it for me, or I've messed things up too much to touch His true beauty. But that is not true, because sex has to do with the gospel picture. And the reality is that Christ comes towards us in the midst of our shame, our pain, our blame, our brokenness. He comes towards us at our worst. See, Jesus doesn't love a future version of you. He's not dreaming of, well, if I can just fix this person, they will be incredible for me. Jesus loves us in the midst of our shame, our pain, and our brokenness. And he comes into that space. And he begins to redeem and restore us. And much like the physical picture of waves continuing to crash over the shore, so Jesus' love continues to crash over us, continues to wash in. And progressively, as a wave moves from one point to another, and as it continues to crash in, it begins to move closer and closer and closer. And so the love of God continues to move progressively closer to us and washes us by the truth of the gospel, washes us by the truth of the word so that we can respond rightly to him. And the picture of sex in marriage is meant to be the same. That it doesn't start out right at the end in fullness. It moves closer and closer with one intentional movement built on another. You see, this whole idea is that we would turn towards each other in a face-to-face relationship. And this turning towards each other is something that needs to become a progressive movement, like a wave, that no matter the brokenness, no matter the shame, that we will turn face to face. It's all about us turning towards each other and making space for us to see each other as Christ has created us, to be naked without shame. afternoon so anyways <laughs> um okay let's uh let's just we'll get into this here so um so first of all i and we'll, we'll begin to talk about this uh from now uh we've got several points uh they're going to frame our conversation uh tonight and then uh and then we'll move from there uh just a couple things um interestingly enough uh so i grew up in a uh, christian home uh, I grew up with really godly parents, uh, the kind of legend that my parents had, uh, honestly, with my friends when they started getting older and getting married and having pre-marriage counseling with them, uh, was their favorite topic of conversation was sex. 
uh, if, if, with my parents. So uh, that the, the idea is not that was their favorite conversation, but rather in the sessions of all the ones they enjoyed the most, uh, it was the conversations about uh, sex and intimacy and all of that kind of thing. So I didn't, I didn't grow up with a weird idea of uh, sex in that way, uh, but I grew up with maybe a common understanding of it. Uh, and I didn't understand uh, it primarily that sex was something that God gave as a tool to build love, not just an expression of love. Here's the problem, is that all movies show it as the culmination. All TV shows show it as the goal. That's why you end up cheering for the adulterer. You're like, oh, right, they're doing wrong. Bad, stop, what do you... And, and you have like this constant tearing of what, they, what it is that they're moving towards because it shows this is, oh, that's the ultimate expression of love. But mathematically, that doesn't work because we don't treat our children the same way, right? We're not from way up north doing that kind of a thing. Maybe too far. Uh, but we do not, we do not, we don't, it doesn't go that way. Our love for our parents does not culminate in that way. Therefore, sex was uniquely given. In the Bible, that is the reality. It's not for, well, this is how I want to use this gift. No, sex is for the context of marriage. Uh, And so in the beginning uh, of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, in God's created order, he created man and woman to love each other and be compatible with each other using the same word for the woman as for what is later used of the Holy Spirit. And God's activity with man is the elevation he gives to woman. And there is an incredible interrelatedness that takes place that was not a surprise to God. And so always, I grew up in a Christian school uh, and in a Christian home, and always the way Um, it was understood for us younger people is that sex was dirty, wrong, and gross, so make sure you save it for the one that you marry. (laughs) Almost, and and we'll just get some awkward language out there, almost as if God created Adam and Eve uh, in the garden, naked, but without any physical plumbing to make it work, and all of a sudden, God takes a coffee break, and the devil sticks on a penis, and then all of a sudden, they're doing something they were never supposed to do. That's the way we treat her. It's like, oh, what are they doing? It's not like God created them. It's like, oh, that's good. And then comes back and finds Adam and Eve progressing towards intimacy with each other and having sex. And then God goes, oh, totally didn't see that coming. Right? There's this understanding that it's like, it's constantly in this dirty place. And because, here's the thing, like I have all this stuff to move from history as to how we got here and all these kind of things. But the idea of the, the vehicle, the car, the car really robbed us away from, though cars are wonderful, uh, they robbed us away from a right view of dating. Dating used to take place in the home, on the porch, where the dad is cleaning his shotgun. That used to be our understanding of dating. All of a sudden with the car, it's like now dating is in the back seat of a vehicle. And it's hidden. And it's shame-filled. Whereas ancient culture, the wedding night took place in the center of the party. Bridesmaids and groomsmen 
Their purpose, their sole purpose was to wait hand and foot on the married couple that was consummating their, what the Bible calls and ancient history calls the wedding week. Where on the night they had, they came together, the dad would take the bed sheet that they had just consummated their marriage on and would hang it up in front of everybody and then the party would begin. Because if there was no blood on the sheets, then questions would begin to happen. And it might not be a wedding party, it might be a stoning party. And not good old BC bud. They would take the girl out and they would, I don't know, whatever. And they would take the girl out and they would, they would actually, they would stone her to death in that moment. Because that was, that was a part of it. Because she had defiled herself and she had not made it public that she had already defiled herself. So sex was this, it wasn't a hidden, it's what you guys do behind the closed doors kind of thing. It was something that everybody knew what was happening and everybody celebrated. And it was what the party revolved around. So the bridesmaid and the groomsmen, they would, or maid of honor rather, they would, that was invented for them to serve the married couple so that they didn't have to get out of bed. The whole time they just be in their tent, getting to know each other, acquainting with each other, celebrating the gift that God has given them. And so the, the people would bring in food for them. They'd take out their uh, bathroom buckets. They would do all of that kind of stuff. So they would just stay there locked in for an entire week while the party was going on around them. So it was celebrated. And that's God's picture of marriage. It's all the way through. So much so... That Song of Solomon, like we could do an entire course just on Song of Solomon, which is basically the top hits of, of um, Solomon and his bride, uh, the Shulamite bride. And it is an intense, like intense, intense, intense encounter of sexually explicit material. So much so that Hebrew boys were not allowed to read it until they were 30. And so we've always joked about it in youth. We've always joked about the idea. If that was true, do you think those boys would grab a candle, get under the covers and be like, oh, Song of Solomon. <laughs> because like, it's like you'll, you'll know the stuff. We, like, we won't take the time to read it right now. And if you, if you need more proof on this, uh, there's, there is so much stuff. Commentators are hilarious on it. Like I could just break it down for you and then show what Hebrew commentaries would say and what the idea of what modern commentaries are like, oh, yeah, so anyways, like, they really don't want to touch it. But then they can't, they can't get away from the whole pleasure sensation. And there is everything in Song of Solomon's. I've had lots of arguments about this with people. Uh, I've had people take me out for coffee to go, well, here's what Hebrew scholarship goes. And I go, how much Hebrew have you had? Here's what my Hebrew scholarship says. This is what the actual word actually says. I've, like, I've wrestled this through. And I've also had enough humility to go, this isn't something I just like, inherited. Something I've studied over and over and over, just looking at what is this really saying? And, and, and like, just so you know, just to kind of like set the, the, the weird, awkward bar, there is oral sex in Song of Solomon. I'm going to show you where it is. It's in multiple places. And there's lots of Christians in the community that we grew up in that goes, no, the only sex that you can have is vaginal. That's it. And it's like, well, no, there's other ways and there's a lot of explicit language. Because my first point, you want to, we'll put this up here right now. The first point of what sex was created for was for pleasure. And we have to begin that way. Okay? We have to begin that it was created by pleasure. Now, just some fun historical realities. 
We've been affected by the church fathers that were wrestling with a very pornographic culture. They will say that the Roman world, where Christianity was birthed in, they will say that the Roman world was filled with pornography. That even to this day, you can find pornographic uh, stuff in Roman um, archives everywhere. It was one of the highest pornographic cultures ever. And so you'll get a bunch of church father types that in order to combat it, they run from it completely, and they start coming up with actually heretical ideas that moved in and seeped in to our understanding of God and his good created order. Some, some interesting ones, for example, uh, some interesting ones, uh, for example, is that some of these guys, like Gregory of Nyssa uh, and, uh, and, and uh, Jerome, and some of these guys, they would say that Adam and Eve never had sex until after the fall. That how they were going to create babies in the first place was there was going to be a magical tree in the magical garden with magical fruit that if Eve ate it, she'd get pregnant. I'm not joking. Like, this is not being made up at all. This is straight up there. Because the platonic worldview at the time, the platonic worldview at the time came in and, uh, and began to... You can hang on to this if you can. Began to separate body from soul, body from spirit. And they began to say, well, the body and all of its stuff is bad. It's not eternal. There wasn't a high worldview for that. And so they said, the body's bad, so therefore, therefore, sex must be bad, and everything to do with sex must be bad, and, and we just, we can't touch it, and, but it's only the things that you do with the soul matters. And so then you have heretical things coming in uh, with the Nicolaitans in Revelation uh, and the spirit of Jezebel in Revelation and all this stuff where these people would play on that worldview and then say that basically you can do whoever you want whenever you want. And the Christian gospel came into the mix of that, that actually in Roman culture at that time, and the gospel is being written in that time, that when um, you would gather together for a meal, so if we all gathered in our home, uh, in, in, in our home there, at a certain time of night, if there was any females present, they were signing off on being used by any and every man in the room. Straight across. These are secular theologians that are writing this stuff. That is the stuff of, of history that Christianity came in. And so therefore, the Lord's table and the agape meal that you read about in Corinthians, the sharing where slaves and women and men are all equal at the table, they began to flock to Christian homes because Christian homes wouldn't prostitute their Christian daughters. And they began to affect the culture because they went, no, that is not happening here. And so they would leave the parties and the places and prominent, prominent Roman women would get saved around a table like that. And then they'd save some of these Roman generals later, Roman politicians later. Because, and I know I'm moving quickly. I'm just going to give you a bunch of stuff and then we'll go from there. But that what I'm saying is that Christianity came, the gospel came into a broken worldview and a restorative worldview of that which God created us for in the first place. Like, this is what he intended us to do. They say that the one place God speaks in the Song of Solomon is where he says, drink deep and get drunk on love. The one place they can't explain whose voice it is in the song. 
and they go, it's God's voice because that's con- it's in uh, continuity with the whole of scripture. And he says, not just, not just have a bit, enough to make a baby. Goes, get drunk with it. Be intoxicated. And so Proverbs writes to his son in Proverbs 5. I, I think I memorized Proverbs 5 when I was 14 or 15 years old. Uh, and forever, I've had it in my brain. But anyways, because I was looking forward to it. And if you don't know what Proverbs 5 is, here we go. Um, says to his son, says, why should you let your streams just spill out into the street? Why should you be promiscuous? No, this is my paraphrase. Save your body, your mind, and your soul for the wife of your youth. And don't just be monogamous in the monogamous sense of you didn't spill your streams out everywhere. But rather, be intoxicated, drunk on her love. Be in absolute delight and intoxication with her breasts and let them satisfy you at all times. Crazy language, right? Like we can all admit that's awkward, right? It's super awkward. That, it, it, that the idea is that the biblical mandate is one of pleasure. So sex is something that is of increasing pleasure. Just to use, and, and we're going to move a little bit quicker from here, but just to use a uh, physiological understanding, I'm not trying to teach you, I'm trying to just bring you to the point of remembrance that you'd be able to understand and, and understand the, the value of what it means to come together face to face. That in our physical bodies, there is something on the woman's body called a clitoris that is only for pleasure. That's in the created design that wasn't put there by the fall. Can everybody handle that? Because we build in this stuff. We build in this misunderstanding of what sex was created for. Because what we inherited is we inherited this weird view of don't touch sex. It's, it's dirty, wrong, gross, so save it for the one you marry kind of thing. And the church father's like, don't have sex, don't have sex. If you have to, to have children, go ahead. And it was this like weird idea that like built out over history. And then the Victorian age came. And the Victorian age looked at things like that table over there. And they went, oh no. They went, like, men are so horny, they're so gross, they're so weird, we're going to stop them from just falling into sin. And so they would actually, they would actually, where tablecloths came from was in the Victorian age, the long tablecloths. Because where it first started is women had long dresses all the way past their ankles. Uh, and so it was very at the bottom, so you couldn't even see the ankle. And then somebody came out with the idea, I'm still researching who. I, I want to know their name. I want to shout their name out for history. But anyways, they said, well, there's pretty ornate table legs, and men are pretty much animals. So therefore, uh, we're going to cover the table legs because they might see a table leg and start lusting after that table leg. Like, what? <laughs> like, and then the Catholic Church came in, and the, the Roman Catholic Church in particular, and they began to blot out days that you weren't allowed to have sex. There's like, nope. This day, nope, this is, this, uh, this is like, a, we're celebrating this saint on this day, so no, can't have sex on this day, can't have sex on this day, can't have sex on this day. And pretty much by the end of it, almost half the days out of the year are blocked out. Are blocked out. And so we inherited this weird, weird, weird world. And, and that's the world we're coming from. And we're in such a, a sexually charged culture. 
we're in a culture that it's in our face all the time. That we, we often as Christians, we go underground with it. We don't pay attention to what God's plan is. We don't realign ourselves with what his recreation is. So, uh, in, in this, there's two, two mini stories in my life. And I, I'm looking forward to hearing how other stories help you guys in the future. Or maybe you already have them. Because I know we have, a, we have such a, a wide variety of people here. But I have two stories. Uh, it was, I think we were married for about four years. And I went to that uh, Florida revival. Uh, and I went on the trip with uh, my father and Isaac's father, Brendan McCauley. Uh, and as Brendan and I were just like hanging out talking, uh, and I wasn't the biggest fan of everything that was going on, so I was kind of like complaining and whining. And he just looked at me for a minute, and he, uh, he kind of just gave me that all-knowing smile. And he read this poem at one point, which I'm not going to read right now. It's not an explicit poem. It just has nothing to do with it. But it just pointed out the fact that I was super hyper-religious. Uh, and, uh, and so in a nutshell, the... Um, he just, he kind of gave me this knowing look and he goes, Samuel, there are three things in life that I love. He says, I love the scriptures. He's like, I love good wine and I love making love to my wife. And believe it or not, that's not the most complicated thing. But after four years of being married, I started realizing maybe I wasn't enjoying her as much as I should have. Maybe I was just using using sex as something just to do and something that was just normal. And so we're married so that we do this. Maybe I didn't, maybe I wasn't trying to figure out what's my, what's the pleasure reality of this. And I'm not just talking about sex at this point. I'm talking about enjoying the person. And Maddie will literally say, when I came back from Florida, that's her favorite me that she's ever had. And it came from one prophetic offhanded comment. He wasn't intentionally trying to teach me anything. He just told me, he's like, you know what? This is what I enjoy. And I realized in that minute, I was like, I will, I will forego pursuing all the finances in the world. I will forego, and I was on, at that point in my life, I was on a bit of a, a business track where you, I was working for a business consulting company uh, and the kind of billable hours we were doing were just crazy numbers. Uh, and so that was my world at that time. I was gonna pursue that. And Maddie would have been more like a little trophy, kind of like, this is my wife, and, and I'm, but I'm gonna be traveling, doing all these kind of things. So I had this idea in my heart. But I realized in that moment, it was like that little tweaky switch. I realized in that moment, I cannot go through my entire life without knowing that twinkle in Brendan's eye. It like sabotaged me. It really sabotaged me. All of a sudden, scripture began exploding in my face going, you missed it, you missed it, you missed it. And I'm going, oh, really? It's that good? Going, Really? Because it blows your mind, the idea about it. And so, the, and, and, and at this point, I'm talking about sex and everything else. But literally, my quest has been enjoying my wife. Understanding more and more about her. Understanding what makes her, what makes her excited and happy. And just what makes her satisfied. What makes her feel safe. Like, all these kind of things. And so, my research then goes, insert, Maddie, here. This, is, this would help me with Maddie. And I've, I have like a tally, like a journal thing. Like I just keep constantly keeping tabs on her because I'll forget tons of things. Just, I'll just forget. Like I just go, oh, I don't remember what kind of chocolate she likes. That's my most panic anyways, side note. And she loves chocolate, loves having chocolate hidden all around the house. Uh, and then I go in a store and I'm like, dang it, I don't know which chocolate she likes again. I'm like, which one is it now? <laughs> like it's, it, it moves. So 
And that's just a side note. That's a side note we've preached all through our youth ministry and everybody that we've ever done is the fact that the fact of being promiscuous and just sleeping with whoever you want all the kind like all the time makes no sense in the biblical concept and makes no sense in reality because you keep resetting. And every girl is 100% different and changes. So therefore your knowledge is semi-useless. You might have a base knowledge but it won't actually affect the one that you're married to and connected with. And then also, your wife keeps changing. She is an endless discovery. Endless. It's like, wow, I thought we liked, I guess not anymore. That sounds good. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> right? So, here's, here's the interesting thing uh, about that. Just about the pleasure thing. I just realized I don't understand, like I, I want to I learn to understand how to take delight in my wife. Like, I would love it to be said about me by her and by my kids. At the end of my life, boy, he loved us. Out of, like, just, I want to go after that. It must be possible to be so loved that everything outside of them just goes, man, they, like, he didn't make that much money. Like, my daughter and I recently had a conversation, uh, and my daughter, Alicia, is nine, uh, and I know a lot of you are familiar with her, uh, but we just recently had um, a semi-teenage conversation uh, about how she got mad at me because I'm, I'm a daddy that doesn't make enough money for her to have her own horse. And I, was like, <laughs> and I was like, I'm like, but I'm the daddy that spends lots of time with you. And she's like, I want both. <laughs> and like, it was, it was a lot. And, and then, oh man, we like went on and on and on. Uh, and I've got a lot of funny points about it, but she just, yeah. She's like, she, you know, when like, for those of you who are familiar with Alicia, she uh, often uh, gets an air about her like she's like a hundred times older than she is. And she's like, actually, daddy, she's kind of like fixed her glasses. Pretty much you're a failure. Like, what? <laughs> Pretty much? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, I won though, just, to, just so you know. So we'd ease, ease the tension here. So I want to tell you something. I want to submit something to you. Though every one of you could probably argue this with me, okay, this point I'll, give, I'll submit it to you, interestingly enough. On a general whole, it's pretty true. Um, there's something wired about guys, this idea of leveling up. And that's why video games super matter. That's why, uh, that's why there's an uh, um, understanding of these constant, like, that's why we love sports. That's why we like cars. That's why we like bigger engines. That's why we like, like, there's this constant, and it's, it's deep inside. And you watch, like, like little uh, Patrick's boys, like, running around. It's in them. They're just, like, they are not my little girls. That's just a, like, they are completely 100% different. They're moving at a whole different speed than my daughter's. Uh, and so it's fun to watch them that way because it always reminds me, like, oh, that's, that's right. That's very interesting. Um, so, like, boys love their, their stuff, and they love leveling up. And here's the idea that I wish I knew early on and that we continue to discover is that sex in marriage is something that you level up. It continues to get better and better and better if you begin to understand how to play. And I don't mean technique. I don't mean toys and videos. I mean understanding the love of your life, how her body moves, how the stuff like all works together. What is a huge turnoff? What is a huge turnoff? What is a better turn on? What is a, uh, like things like that. It's a leveling up thing. And if, if young men knew that, that they could, I, I believe if young men knew that it was almost like a video game that way. It's not a game, but it was almost like that you could level up 
towards it, that you constantly can get it better and better and better. And it's default true of the Christian life. Because even in a monogamous relationship, it constantly, you grow towards each other. It's the natural default of the heart. That's why statistically, uh, the re- most recent stats that I read that are the most credible uh, came from Oxford. Uh, and it was uh, two sociologists, uh, just really educated, uh, way beyond anything I could ever imagine. Uh, they said that, uh, that, that the, um, oh, hang on, how did this say this? I just lost my thought. Apologize. This thing. Never mind, doesn't matter. I'll, like, I'll, I'll come back to it. The idea, the idea that it's like a leveling up and it's a constant movement towards, they said, there we go, came back. They said that uh, um, Christians, Christians, Bible-loving, church-going, Jesus-loving tr- Christians have best sex across the board. They can't, they can't explain it. So that you already have a natural tendency that is more your, up your alley, if you will. And part of it, <laughs> you're funny. Part of it, uh, part of it is because we have a story that frames our conversation, right? We have a story, a biblical story that frames our conversation. And that story, uh, th- that story that we have is the God that isn't afraid of sex, but gives it to us as a gift. And so the first point is that sex is for pleasure. It's something that we can enjoy. And I was thinking recently about this, uh, is why, why there, there's a, uh, a disconnect with uh, young men and with what sex is and the picture of sex is that you send a boy to his room uh, when you're disciplining a young man, a young, uh, like a little, little boy. You're disciplining a boy. You send him to his room. For the most part, he's the happiest camper on the planet. That's where all his Lego is. That's where his video games are. That's where all his stuff is. Happy, happy, happy. You send a girl to their room alone, devastating. Now, I know there's all the different, well, that wasn't true of me. Fine, fine. But for the majority, women are dis- once the women are disconnected from the social reality, it's a, it's a huge emotional issue, which is why sex is a different gig for women than it is for men that way. But it's how we're wired. But if young men understood that, it's like a, a, like a, almost like a, you can level up. There are greater heights. It gets better and better and better. That's why stats like in year 35, you hit back to the honeymoon stage of your life is a very invitational stat for me to stay married. That's enough of a video game stat for me to go, I want to know. Once I get there, we'll have another conversation. So not that I'm saying I'm getting divorced or anything like that, but I'm just saying that's a really exciting gig, right? That's enough for me to say I'm in, right? And, and all the stats out there, I just think it's really helpful. It's it, like, it might not be as helpful for you. You're way, some of you are way past that. And that's wonderful. But it's a, it's a beautiful picture of what God has given that there are joys and greater joys for you to find. The more that you come together towards each other, it's a beautiful joy. And so the Bible has this robust understanding of what sex was created to be and invites us to enter into it and to redeem it and restore it. Because God is the God of restoration. God is absolutely the God of, of restoration. And so it's wonderful to know. And we've talked to, we've talked to so many different married couples. And I'll never use an analogy for people in this church. But so many different married couples outside of here. 
that they, they honestly, they look, go into marriage at the beginning because there isn't a big conversation going on all the time in the Christian worldview. They have sex for the first time or the first marital week and they go on their honeymoon and they literally go, is this as good as it gets? They literally go, I don't know if I want this anymore. And they begin making intelligent decisions based on poor information. Based on not knowing the facts of what God's invited you into. Because the movie culture and this oversaturated culture builds this thing up in our minds to go, oh, it's just going to be like this and it's like this and like this. And we spend so much time in this culture individually participating in sexual acts through pornography and through other things like that, that we have this weird understanding. Or fantasy novels, for example. Uh, um, love romances. That, that we individually, we have this idea that's escalated, and then when we get let down from it, we're just like, oh, wow. Like, I'll give you a, a, a different type of example. Um, when I was in uh, high school, I went to uh, Japan, and part of what they did, I was president of the high school, and so one of the gifts they gave me was took me to Tokyo Disneyland. And I had been there when I was a kid, and I knew I was going to Tokyo Disneyland. And all of a sudden, so I'm older now going to Tokyo Disneyland, and I had been to Disneyland as a kid, and I show up to this magical, happy wonderland of Disneyland, and I had it built up to here. I was like, there's these rides I never got to try as a kid because I was too short, and there's all these kind of things that I wanted to do in Disneyland. I'm like, I am so excited to go to Tokyo Disneyland. And I walked in there, and apart from walking through the castle, and I was like, wow, oh, this place is incredible, everything was a letdown. Every single thing was a letdown. I was like, these rides aren't as good. The lineups are too long. And in fact, in Japan, all the Disney characters shrunk. So I was taller than all of them. And in many ways, <laughs> not because I grew. <laughs> but but uh, in fact, uh, so, so, so this, this world, it was, it was a disappointment. But in many ways, it's like that for sex and marriage. And, and people, they hear these stories. They hear these stories. So here, here we go. Really quickly. Um, uh, so I was, I was sitting in the hot tub with a bunch of, uh, and Isaac was there, uh, and, a, and a couple other pastors uh, from the local area were sitting in there. And they all of a sudden just had this conversation, uh, and, and this was many, many years ago. Uh, they had this conversation uh, about marital advice. So the one young pastor uh, was about to get married, and the other pastor in there uh, began giving marital advice. And he was authoritative. And uh, wrong story. Sorry. Switch. That was the end result. Hot tub was the end. We were in Denny's restaurant, okay? Denny's restaurant, late night eating. I'm just going to like switch it because uh, it matters for the story. Uh, but Denny's restaurant, and, uh, and I wanted late at night, it was after a church conference kind of thing, I wanted late at night a strawberry milkshake because I'm that geeky. And they made fun of me, and I was like, that's all I wanted, late at night, right? Anyways, uh, and so, uh, so I'm like sipping on my strawberry milkshake, and, and these pastors, and there was one other pastor there too, uh, they're like, they're like grilling this guy about the way his expectations should be. They're giving premarital counseling to him. And it's all like, okay. And then he said, uh, and then, because this is the type of conversations lots of guys have, uh, is they go, um, the, the, the young, young pastor that was about to get married, he goes, well, how often should I expect having sex? And, uh, and then the guy that was uh, um, kind of like, really like given all this information, the pastor has been married, he'd been married for three, four years at the time. Uh, he began, he began t- like saying, he's like, oh, he's like, here's what I did. I went around to all my pastor friends that I knew, and he was pretty connected. And he's like, and I asked them, on average, how often they have sex a week. And here's the advice 
consensus that came back, which is true to stats across the board. He said that the average, uh, um, he says the average time when you're first married, two to three times a week. And when you are later married, after the first year, one to two times a week. And then he says to this, he goes, buddy, you'll be lucky if you get it once or twice a week. And at that point, unfortunately, my milkshakes came out of my mouth. (laughs) And a whole new conversation entered into the picture. And I won't tell you the rest of the conversation, but I want to give you this, that it's not about how many times, it's about the times of connection that you have. And it's not a number. Because often we hear stats and we go, oh, this should be okay. And I, wanna, I wanted part of this to be a kind of a, a, a momentary uh, eye-opener moment, if you will. That the, the possibilities of how often you can have sex. It's not about, I need to keep hammering this out. It's not about the numbers. Everybody has their own physical capabilities. You have your rhythms and your stuff. But what I'm going to show you in the next few minutes is that sex is the greatest tool you will have to build a covenant relationship with your spouse. The greatest tool. It's greater than conversations, though conversations add. It's greater than going on fancy dates, though that adds. It's greater than all these other things. There's beautiful ways to build relational oneness. But sex is God's primary tool for it. And so my baseline philosophy on this is that what the Christian life is to the Lord's table, sex is to marriage. Okay? What the Lord's table is in the moving towards remembering the body and blood of Christ. Remembering the covenant. And not just mentally remembering remembering the covenant and entering into that covenant is God's picture of how he demonstrates that to his church. Are there other ways to remember and participate with Jesus? Yes, and we do them all in church. There's singing, there's Bible reading, there's all these things. But the Lord's table primarily is the way that he has for Christians through all time have moved towards him in love and responded to him in a tangible, physical way. Okay? It's, what it, it's, it's the same kind of parallel that way. And so God built sex to be in marriage, a tool that is an expression of love and a tool that builds love. Can you imagine if, if we as Christians in marriage, we treated, um, we treated sex with our spouse kind of like the way lots of people treat the Lord's table across the board nowadays? And we go, well... You just have to remember it. Can you imagine if God said you get to have sex in your wedding week and that was it? Like, it's like, well, now you just have to remember it. Just, you guys sit together and have a nice meal and then go, remember that? Oh, that was, that was, that was awkward, but good. Can you imagine if that was what it was? No, God goes, no, no. It's a tangible reminder, a constant movement towards each other. And that's why it needs to be constant and consistent with your values. Here's the other crazy thing, okay? 
um, I was spending time talking to a, a PhD of child family psychology, uh, and he was hearing me teach on this and, and, uh, from, um, in Alberta. Uh, and from old to young, they, they just loved like hearing what was happening. And the, you know, the, the, my, constant, uh, my constant experience when I teach this anywhere, and I'm not teaching you what I normally teach. I normally have like more consistent points. But anyways, uh, is, that, is that older ladies absolutely adore what I have to say. <laughs> They're like, can you teach that again? I want to get my husband here. I'm like, wow, that's an that's a interesting, I just wouldn't have anticipated it. But... Anyways, I just think it's, I think it's really fun. So I was spending time talking with him, and so he gave me some more documents on this. Uh, but there's something. This is the argument we used to use for why you shouldn't have sex before marriage. So if you can just bear with me for a minute. Uh, this is the argument that we used to use. It's because in the female body, um, sex releases something called oxytocin. Okay, and I, I, won't, I won't geek out on this too much, and I won't bore you. Lots of you might be like, yeah, I know, hurry up. Oxytocin, okay? And oxytocin is a bonding agent. It's a bonding agent that actually is physically released in your body through sex. And then, and, and, and so in, when you have premarital sex, it bonds with somebody in a way that's physiological that every time you separate from that person, so you just, you break up with them and you hook up with somebody else and you're in this constant cycle of premarital sex, is that it's almost like a sticky tape. Where once it gets on a piece of cardboard and you rip it off, it's a little less sticky than it was before. So you're a little less connective than you were before. And a little less connected than you were before. And then pretty soon, that's why it's easier and easier for girls to have promiscuous sex. Because they've had it so often, so it's not as sticky. And then with boys, boys do something called imprinting. And that's why the backseat of the car is so bad. Because boys need it sex not to look dirty, wrong, and gross. It's something that they're stealing. Boys in locker rooms always joke about who they, who's, like, who they just had the other night or who they, they took. Like, they wanna, like, I want to get that girl. I want to like, take that girl. I want to like, sleep with her. I want to like, it's a, like, almost like a girl is an object that way. And I, and I went to public school for a bit and like, the conversations are just like crazy what they talk about. But boys imprint. And so their imprinting world is this is dirty, this is wrong, and this is bad. And so it's, they're, they're locked into a constant state of needing more dirty, more bad, more kinky. That's why stories and fantasies and role-playing and all this kind of stuff begins to take place because boys are imprinting in the wrong place. Where boys were born to imprint is when they became a man and they were about to marry a girl, their entire community said, yes. We approve and applaud of your wedding day that that's your girl, that's your spouse. You are going to come together and we celebrate you. And boys need that. Kind of like, and we can't use this, not kind of like, but also like. When a, a, like a young man gets a car, needs approval to go, or a young girl gets their first car, it's kind of like, that's an approval thing. You go, yes, that's wonderful. So you don't feel like you're like, I don't really know what I'm doing here. And you're always doubting yourself, Okay. There's, a, there's a, a, a picture of that. So he brought, brings me aside and he goes, he goes hey, do, this, this PhD psychologist guy, uh, and he says, uh, family psychologist, and he says, there's actually a hormone released in guys too when there's sex, and it's called vasopressin. And it's the same kind of bonding agent. So oxytocin is released primarily the most at birth. So when you, not at birth, when women give birth, 
So I'm moving way too quick here. When women give birth, the most mass amount of oxytocin is released in their body. Okay? And, and they bond with their baby. That's why mama's with their baby. They bond with their baby. It's a physiological reality. Then, through nursing, oxytocin is released. But the greatest place, other than giving birth to a child, that oxytocin is released in a woman's body is through the act of sex. Crazy. It bonds. And when men have sex, vasopressin is released. And it actually brings you towards each other. Okay? It actually bonds you that way. So our appeal is not, here's the number of times you have to have sex a week to have a healthy marriage, and here's the documents to prove it, and all that kind of stuff. Our appeal is come together as much as possible, because it's face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth time. Does that make sense? And I know, I know you're here because you can handle that. And this is not a, here's the weird thing, our culture said it's a guy thing. It's just guys need it, and they want it that way. But no, it's not a guy thing. It's a, it's a life thing that God created. In the Song of Solomon, the woman speaks the most and is the most bold. The woman plant, the woman, like one of my most favorite parts is, and I have to give you the paraphrase because otherwise I'd have to break it down line by line and it would just take too long. The woman says to him right in the first chapter, uh, um, and uh, um, the Shulamite woman says to him, um, you better tell me where you're working so I can come be physically intimate with you. Don't make me dress up like a prostitute and try to like sneak my way towards you. Really? That's pretty bold. <laughs> like, like you imagine your wife, dre- no, don't do that. But anyways, um, the, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a bold statement. It's a bold statement. And she goes, she's like, oh, I can't wait. This is the other one. She's going, I can't wait till I get you at our holiday spot. I need to get you away from your job, get you away from your stuff. I can't wait till I get you to our holiday spot. I have so many sexual things I'm going to show you. Just remember, little Hebrew boy is going, what? <laughs> that, it's in there. It's like, I'll show you, and I have uh, tons of other book recommends and stuff you want, but, um, but you need to know that because I grew up, and I'm not trying to live in a reactionary world. I just grew up in a Christian culture that did not talk this way. It was all what you can't do and what you never should do, and you're evil for even thinking it. It's like, Bob's like, no, like, here's why you wait, because it's legend. It's legend, and it gets better it's almost like god shouting to our generation going it's better than you think it's better than you think and that's what i'm believing that our church would move towards a lot of people think like i'd be almost like like this is all i like talking about but i i want this is a a, easy the easiest connective point to get to come together and the way that if you want your husband to be faithful and loyal to you and you want your wife to be faithful and loyal to you, you want to have a consistent, awesome sex life and you do not want to wait till you're in the mood because otherwise you're like a bad movie where one person's in the mood and the other's not and the other person goes over here and then this person's in the mood and the other person's not and it just never happens because it's not about waiting for being in the mood. A lot of people will say, if you begin to just move towards it, you'll get in the mood. You'll get in the mood. You don't wait for it that way. 
Now, there are so many things that, that men need to do and women need to do in order to cultivate that world. But it's not something that we should think, well, I just don't really need to pursue it and it's, it's good enough right now. It's something that you move towards constantly. You figure out how you can move towards each other better that way. And so somebody once said, um, sex starts in the kitchen. That was the phrase, right? Sex starts in the kitchen, meaning that when a husband does the dishes and really connects with his wife and serves and, and plays with the kids and has been doing the right stuff, that that turns a woman on and then it's like, bam, it starts in the kitchen. And I go, boo, hiss. Sex, sex starts the night before. And what I mean by that is you begin to build you begin to build a sex life with how you go to bed, okay? With how you go to bed. You build your sex life for the next day with how you guard that time. The bedroom for a lot of people is a place where their biggest fights come. The bedroom for a lot of people is a lonely, lonely place. Where they're going, I have these desires, I have these thoughts, I have these crazy things. I mean, some of the couples that we've, we've met Outside of here, you sit them down and you go, so what's the problem here? And they go, well, I just feel like this one never wants to have sex. And like, they're like, so if this, this is the couple and we're talking to the couple, they go, they ask, the, ask the wife, what, what is it? Like, what's the problem in your marriage? He never wants to have sex with me. And the husband goes, what? I always want to have sex with you. You never want to have sex with me. And then the wife's like, no, I always want to have sex with you. It's a, and it's the, and there, there's all this hit and miss. And you get in this weird little argument mode because you're not intentionally guarding certain times that you have together. And then you realize after, once it gets spoken out loud and you're like meeting with these couples and they go, like pretty much one of our counseling sessions was, hi, sorry, time out real quick. Do you guys hear each other? We'll talk to you later. Why don't you go deal with that? <laughs> Because like, you both are on the same page. What do we need to do here? The, this, this idea, okay? This idea of sex starts in the kitchen versus sex starts in the bedroom is it came from the Hebrew understanding of the way day and night is supposed to work. So Sabbath rest, actually, according to the Hebrew world, uh, the nighttime was the beginning of the day. Okay, your, your evening was the beginning. That's why, that's why Genesis says evening, and morning. So Sabbath always began in evening, right? It's getting a little hot in here, isn't it? Uh, but anyway, so uh, Sabbath, so just track with me just for a few more minutes here. Sabbath uh, was evening to morning. And so the idea of this was that you actually prefigured by going to sleep at night, you prefigured starting your day in Sabbath rest. Crazy. That's the rhythm. And so understanding that and all that kind of study, we wanted to always start our day by coming together. So even if I had to work on like a paper really late at night for school, or even if somebody had to like go to bed earlier because of something, we would come together first. We would, we would make the action of going to bed together first, then one of us would get up if we had to. But intentionally, we would do our very best to go to bed together first and begin our relationship, if you will, start our day in intimacy. Start our day in intimacy. And then it would build from there. 
And the interesting thing about it is the more that the biblical principle is he who has will be given more. That's actually there. And you just begin to cycle through. So you're like, wow, this is incredible. You begin moving towards it in better and better ways. And so remember last, uh, last month we talked about valley decisions. So my parents brought forward the idea of valley decisions. I totally forgot about that principle, though they taught me that. Uh, we used to call it just what we'd take off the table. And so just to be real vulnerable with you guys, just for a moment, just for the sake of your joy, hopefully, one of the things that Maddie and I took off the table was the ask for sex at night. It was an assumption that unless something crazy came up, like a screaming baby, (laughs) it wasn't an ask. It was a, it was going to happen. Because here's what we found is that when you're always waiting for the ask, everybody's locked in. There's these moments of locked into, should I ask? I don't know if I should ask. Should I ask? I don't know if I should ask. And you're locked into this weird world. When 1 Corinthians 7 says that it's a command that the husband's body does not belong to him anymore, but belongs to the wife. And the wife's body, in marriage only, the wife's body doesn't belong to her anymore, but to the husband. And so therefore, you are not supposed to not come together unless you are in some kind of fast that is holy to the Lord so that you are not tempted by the devil. And I find too often the greatest temptations towards us being abrasive towards each other comes at bedtime. Maddie will ask the most profound questions at bedtime. Go, what about this? I'll go, like at times like we're like why are we gonna talk about that right now kind of thing and it would just be but but because we took that off the table because we took the the attitude off the table of well like we would we would figure out how to work through that and we learned from uh we learned from a, a book early on they said just don't fight in your bed never ever fight in your bed and if you fought in your bed at one time don't fight there anymore even if you're dog dirt tired Just get up, get out of bed so that you learn to fight somewhere else because space matters. You want the bedroom to be a sacred space for rest and sleeping and face-to-face connection. Does that make sense? Just get up, just move somewhere else. And that's the hardest thing ever. And then one of the other concepts that we had, and I'll just throw this out there for any any prophetic ears that ever want to hear this. Um, Trevor McPherson one time told me, uh, um, talking about how to fight well with your spouse. Uh, in particular, his wife. He said he has never, ever had a really like crazy fight as long as he had the guts or as long as she, Judy, had the guts to just declare in the middle, right in the middle of the fight, Jesus, be Lord of this situation or Jesus, be Lord of this conversation. And they said 100% of those fights always turned around real quick because I'm on, I, we've tried that at times, and it was one of the most awkward, painful, I felt like all of hell was trying to stop me from saying those words. Like, I was just like, Jesus, <laughs> be Lord. And all of a sudden, it just, be, you began to be foolish. And so I just had this weird thought. I was like, I wonder if that's possible in marriage to, in the middle of a fight to go, nope, let's go have sex. And then we'll pick this up where we left off and see if you can. Just throwing it out there. 
Is it possible? That's not a, that's not a command. It's a, just a, a, a reality of, of something. So here we go. Whew. And the heat's on and it's hot. Okay? Do you have anything to say? Okay. Real quick, we'll, we'll write this up here just for your notes. Um, so sex is for children. Everybody's okay with that? That is a purpose of sex. It's for children. And that's found in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply. Um, the kids are a blessing and it comes out of sexual intimacy. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That children are supposed to be birthed from a place of sexual intimacy and beautiful covenant. And children, actually, the way God intended it to be, and remember, I am on the team of restoration, okay? I'm on the team of restoration. That's, the, that's our life story. That's the reality of this. So there is, there is second chances. There is reality. I don't know if it's second chances, even call it that. But there are beautiful pictures of God's restoration in it. But the idea is that even in the picture of, of sex when um, two virgins come together is there's a blood covenant that takes place and that's the picture of children coming into the covenant that was by the prefiguration of blood of the blood of Christ. Lots to say about all that. So sex is for oneness. Genesis 2.23 to leave and cleave one flesh like a glue. One of the Hebrew uh, commentaries uh, says that um, it's like a mingling of souls. Is that not exciting? So what's happening in sex, here's what you need to know, is that the greatest desire of a woman uh, and the greatest desire, truthfully, of a man is to be truly known by somebody. To be completely what the Bible would call naked and unashamed. Naked without shame. And that vulnerability of intimacy, into me you see every flaw, every reality, that the idea is that it's, it's to create oneness. And so it's a mingling of souls. It's not a, just a mingling of bodies. Sex is not a physical act. And I think lots of us think, well, it's just a physical act. No, there is a spiritual, intimate, deep connection that takes place. And so if you want a better conversation with your spouse, learn how to have a great co- sexual life with your spouse. Learn how to do it in a way that is not hurtful to the other. And I don't mean walking away from this and going, well, we've got to have sex, so let's just get going. No, because you're having sex with a person, so it's not, you're not having sex with a, just a body alone. You are mingling your lives together. And it's, it's supposed to create fruitfulness and joy in life. But it's, it's also the picture of being glued. The picture of marriage, the word marriage in the Hebrew is to take one's hand into the other. And in that taking of one's hand into the other, there is an inseparable nature because it's prefiguring what's going to happen later. So sex is for protection. Just moving quickly through this. Sex is for protection. And this is 1 Corinthians 7. If you're taking notes, you want to look at this later. It's for, uh, it's for protection. That actually you preserve your spouse's integrity and purity by having sex because that's what it was for. So the enemy wouldn't tempt you. Bible says you burn with passion, like you gotta, you, you, you need, you can get married, get married so that you can have sex. And so sex is like a fire, but a fire is best in a, in a, in what is called a hearth or a fireplace. It's best in that kind of a place where it's, it's contained and that's the covenant of marriage. Jesus knows where sex is best because that's where you get the greatest warmth. That's where you get the greatest life. That's where you can cook things and provide for other people. And, and, and we won't go down that analogy too far, but it's a beautiful picture and it's something that needs to be kindled and constantly stoked like a fire. 
constantly stoked. And so in very many ways, like kindling, the little things you do for your spouse, learning five love languages type things, like having conversations, and you're not having conversations so that you have sex. I want to switch it and go, you're having sex so that you have conversations. You're having sex. There's stuff that I talk to Maddie about that I won't talk to anybody else about. Why? She knows everything about me and she still loves me. There's such an intimacy. I'm not intimate with anybody like I'm with her. Wow. So that starts, everybody goes like these guys are all after and there's this weird culture because we're in a weird culture. Maybe it started that way. But once you start aligning yourself with the biblical picture of what marriage is and what sex is for, it's something that builds love, not just expresses love. It isn't just the end to a great date. Okay? And, and it's not something that you can't have pleasurable. Like, I'll give you an example. Uh, Martin Luther, most of you are familiar with uh, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., uh, but Martin Luther, the guy that nailed the 95 Thesis on the door. He actually said that orgasms, insects, are so powerful that when he got married, he got married to a, a runaway nun, uh, and she's, she's awesome. Anyways, uh, she, she was hilarious. He, he writes in his journal, uh, and he goes, I miss your love, and I miss your brew. Uh, and he writes a letter to her like that. And so, anyways, uh, she brewed home beer. And she was like a, she did like a medicinal garden. And she was just a crazy lady. Just like, had like crazy gardens and was just amazing. And, and they had crazy fights. But anyways, he said that when he had, when he had sex, uh, he said that orgasm was so powerful that he believed that the Holy Spirit left the room. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that we inherit in church. Like, there's no Bible verse about that. In fact, remember, the place that I want to challenge you with is in Song of Solomon's. God goes, while they're making love together, drink deep of this love. Drink deep of this love. Be drunk on this love. Crazy. Love it. So, but it's for protection. And so you open yourself up. Hear this. You open yourself up to other temptations. And I'm not just talking about sexual temptations. I'm talking about, I believe if you are not intimate in your, once you're married, you don't have an option to not be intimate anymore. That's why it says if you can be single, be single. Because it's a great life. Because then you can be fully devoted to the Lord. But the reality is that in marriage, you have to care for the needs of the other. And needs are something that you need, like sex is a part of that need. And it's for protection. So I believe you open yourself up to all sorts of temptations when you're not coming together in intimacy. Because the Bible explicitly says, and that's not a condemnation saying you need to have sex five times a day, every day, like all that kind of stuff. It's not a condemnation. It's what does it look like for you and your spouse, husband and wife, to come together that's in a way that you know in your heart you are making that a priority where you will get face-to-face time, okay? That's what I'm saying. The whole thing. What does it look like for you? Knowing that you're allowed. Knowing that it's healthy. Knowing that every time you do this, it actually creates new life in you. And God is so good that some of these recent articles that I've, I've read uh, and that this guy, um, the, that psychologist exposed me to is that in marriage sex uh, and, and sperm in particular has antidepressants in it is that not crazy outside of marriage has depressants in it is that not crazy it switches that's why they will say girls that are participating in premarital sex are have higher suicide rates higher depression rates higher everything 
right? Is there anything you want to add about that? Crazy. Because sex is a, a, the sperm in the Bible is called seed, right? Like a garden. And it's, it's, it, you're feeding the garden. So new life in your spouse comes into play. And there's, there's, there's life that comes. And so that's, that's a reality that you need to look at as well. This is life-giving stuff. It's not out for your condemnation and well. And here's the other part. Everybody thinks they're supposed to be born good at it. They just think that that's one of the things I should just be naturally, I'm just a champ at it. No, we all learn. We all learn. That's why you keep going better and better and better. And you don't learn by watching videos or doing your own research. There's a super famous book out there, and I'll just give it a shout out because I threw it across the room, called Sheet Music. Uh, And he's super famous, and most married couples, young married couples read it all the time. And he strongly encourages you to get acquainted by yourself with your body before you get married. And I go, way better and biblical to get married and get acquainted with each other's bodies. Because at the end of the day, you're not wanting to touch yourself. You want the other one to touch you, right? And I'm, I'm trying to do this without being too, too frank or too crass. But I'm just saying, like, I love lots of these aspects in that book. But I asked Maddie, I took it and threw it across the room. And she's like, what just happened? I was like, that's evil. Because that creates isolation. And it's meant to protect your unity. It's not meant for your pleasure apart from your spouse. It's not yours. It's together, ours, right? It's this. It's not just, it's not out there for up for grabs, kind of like, well, feel free to go test drive a new car. Like, it's not, it's not out there for your, like, oh, that was wonderful. It's out there for you, you, okay? So I already, I already talked about it. So sex is the glue. It's that which builds love. Okay, here we go. This is gonna be the last point, okay? Last point, we're doing really good for time. Sex, I believe, uh, and I don't think you'll like, hear this anywhere else. Sex, I believe, is a part of fulfilling the prophetic promises of God on your life. Okay? For your spouse. Here's why. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. So sex is for, you want to put those up? Sex builds love. Just put sex builds love. Oh, I missed one. Sex is for comfort. We're going to go to that in one, one more thing. Sex is for comfort. This is in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 12, 24. Sex is for comfort. And the, the picture of this is David and Bathsheba. So get this. David and Bathsheba. This is, I just love the picture of the gospel in this. David and Bathsheba, they commit adultery together. Right? And then, if you're familiar with the story... David commits adultery with Bathsheba and Bathsheba gets pregnant. And then David organizes and figures out a way to kill her husband so that he can marry her. And as a result of all this stuff, their first child dies. And David does amazing things in there. And it's a beautiful picture of what, what the way it works in, um, in a worshipful sense of how you grieve well, how you go through pain well, all these kind of things. I don't have time to get into it. But what I am saying is this, what's explicit and recorded in the Bible is that after the death of their child, they came together again. They came together again sexually. And out of that comes the, one of the greatest kings the world has ever known. 
Solomon. Out of their brokenness comes Solomon. So you need to hold this because I'm going to move through this fairly quickly and we'll unpack it other, other days, other times. But sex actually was a part of their comfort for each other that God's gift to you when you're going through loss is sex. It's the uniting, the comfort. And it's crazy because you don't even know that you really need it. But then you have sex together in marriage and you go, wow, I needed that. And like it becomes this incredible world of face-to-face. Like all of this is happening out here. Stuff we can't control. But still I'm going to turn towards you in face-to-face covenant relationship in an intimate way. You and no other. You, you alone. And that picture of moving towards each other is for comfort and actually comforted. And the word comfort is to come alongside of in strength. It was life-giving, strength-giving. And a lot of fears is that when there's deep loss, especially like losing a baby, having miscarriages, or like gross pain, losing a family member, a lot of it, everybody goes, I just need time away from each other. And I want to shout from the rooftops, no, that's the time you need to come together the most. That's the time you need to come together the most when it hurts because sex is not just for a culmination of a great day. It's to build something in your life and you're declaring something prophetically and you're giving a picture of the gospel that in brokenness and in pain, we will not let stuff drive us apart. We will drive closer together and we will move towards each other no matter the cost, no matter the pain. And it is the greatest prophetic picture of that. Because it matters and it's amazing the unity that is birthed through that. The life that is created through that. And it's something we all want, but our emotions get so jaded and flooded. And and we just go, ah, I just don't think I could even do it. Like, I don't even know if it would work. Then you have a different type of sex. You have comfort sex, hypothetically. What is that noise? Go away. You have comfort sex. You have, there's different styles of sex. And I'm not talking positions and I'm not talking technique. I'm talking, I'm talking about understanding what works for each other. And there's different purposes of it. It isn't just the end of a date. Well, it's been long enough. We better do this. Or we're going away now. Finally, we'll do that. Okay. It's the coming together. So I really want to, I really want to press that. Because one of the biggest messages in the church that God keeps pushing us towards, pushing me towards in particular, is how do you do life and suffer? How do you go through pain? Pain that's breathtaking. And this is one of the gifts of marriage. It's comfort. It's comfort. And it doesn't work even physiologically because sex outside of marriage creates that depressant. So it isn't, it isn't a gift to the world. It's a gift to marriage. Isn't that not mind-bending? It doesn't work. It doesn't work unless it's in that covenant-keeping marriage. And that's why you move towards each other. You just built something deeper. And so in a similar way, there's another crazy, crazy understanding. And that's in Hebrews chapter 11. Of Sarah, Abraham's wife, getting a prime spot in the hall of faith. She gets a shout out beyond all shout outs of most women. It's crazy. And I want to show you how that happened. 
quickly here. Hot, hot, hot. Hebrews 12. appreciate us walking through this together and I'm, I know it's a sensitive issue. So here's what happens in the midst of suffering and pain. And I know many of us walk through uh, brokenness in this and we've had broken worldviews of sex and, and, and there's so many people have been abused. More and more the stats just get higher and higher and that taints our view of sex. But remember, God is the God of restoration. We don't interact with each other based on the way things are. We look to the way God designed things to be and the way he's going to recreate things to ultimately be. And so remember, sex is for this life. It's for this world that God's given us. And it's a part of what he has given us. So Sarah, oh, I just love this. Okay. By faith, verse 8, Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive in, as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise. As a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a, the city. That had its foundations. Whose designer and builder is God. By faith. Sarah herself. Received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as numerous as the grains of the sand by the seashore. And so really quickly, this has been a very influential understanding. Out of this text, Maddie and I have begun to unlock things on what does submission look like in marriage? What does godly submission look like? And I believe submission looks like entrusting. It looks like entrusting yourself not to, not to, I'm getting get out of here, not to, one second, I want to get my scripture. There we go. Entrusting yourself to the God who has promises over your life. Entrusting yourself in the things that he's given us in life to give ourselves to him. Now the word entrusting literally means to hand over. It, in the word, there's betrayal. There's the possibility of betrayal. There's death, risk, to give oneself over in the face of danger and risk. And so 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2, verse 23, says this about Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting to himself, to him who judges justly. And so I, I, I want to I finish with this. Is that the Bible says 
that Eve took the fruit in the garden and she took self-autonomy, self-fulfillment, just the idea of I'll do this my way and Adam did too. Jesus took, like Eve took fruit in the garden and did that. And then Jesus comes through in the gospels, comes in the incarnation and he shows himself as one who is entrusting himself to the father. In fact, God said, Jesus says that his food was to do God's will. Track with me for a minute, okay? His food was to do God's will. John 4, 34. And so Jesus, Jesus takes in this form of entrusting himself to the promises of God, to him who judges justly, and he takes on a new form of eating. And in fact, his food was to do his, the will of God in submission, in, in obedience, Okay? And so there was an understanding of that. And then he moves in and he gives us the new food, the new fruit. And that's the fruit of his body that we take in his submission, his obedience into our lives through the Lord's table. And so I believe submission is rooted in the incarnation and it's rooted, rooted in understanding how Jesus related to the father. It's not abject, just do what you're told. It's not this idea that is so taught out there that the husband has 51% of the vote and the wife has 49. It's not. It's literally entrusting. It's movement towards towards the one who judges justly. And therefore, the Bible says to the, the early church, talking about this lady named Sarah, that those who want to be like her and be her children need to entrust themselves to God and can win their husband over without a word through their actions. God's given them that kind of power that they don't need to berate them and tell them what to do and correct them and call them down and say, you idiot, why aren't you going to fix this? But rather, there's this entrusting to God and here's what this looks like. Sarah, going back to Hebrews 11, Sarah is accredited to fulfilling the greatest promise of the Hebrew culture. The word and the terminology and how it's laid out in Hebrews 11, what we just read, outlines something that would have been audacious in Hebrew culture. That Sarah was the tool and the means, rather, to fulfill the greatest promise that God had to give of the time that prefigured the promise of Christ. Is that not cool? But here's where the rubber meets the road. She fulfilled that promise by having sex with her husband again. You can't escape it. She fulfilled the promise of God. Now get this. She was 90 years old. Abraham was as good as dead. 100 years old. Things would not work the way that they are supposed to work when we are younger. That would have been painful. And guess what sex represented to Sarah at that point in her life? Every single promise that she had heard in the past that was not in her present. So she associated it with sex. There's no biblical way around it. Obviously, they weren't having sex. Obviously, Abraham was having sex with his maidservants at the time. Or before that, because he had Ishmael. Do you see this? So in the Bible, and I'm gonna, we're literally in, done with this, but in the Bible, 
the fulfillment of the promise in the midst of pain, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of unfulfilled desires. God sandwiches in there and he goes, here's how she made a declaration to this generation. She made it by, by actually coming towards her husband again and going, okay, I'm going to believe again. Yes, these are your promises. I'm going to do that which is painful and awkward and trust myself. But God says it's because she had the ability in here, the burden of hope to receive the seed of her husband the promise and I believe through this text you could show that what the Hebrew writers is saying is she didn't disqualify her husband she didn't look at him as a failure towards her she came towards and said I'm going to believe and entrust myself again to the promise that God gave because I believe that after after Abraham hosted what we understand to be a prefigure of Christ before he went to Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have heard, no, you have Ishmael, but there will be another. And so they would have had to go again and believe the promise. And so Abraham probably would have said, well, we got to have sex again because that's the way you make a baby. And so Sarah, Sarah goes, yes. And I believe that was in her heart and her body went, Yes to God's promise, even if this is the worst, even if it doesn't work out and I'm at great risk, I will say yes. And the promises of God will be fulfilled in my life. And the biblical view of sex through that is it was fulfilled by a husband and wife coming together. And that was a picture of the promises of God for our generation and our time. Do you have anything to say? Okay. Oh, man. Okay, um, I will, I will, hence we didn't have tables, so this was going to be a, not a conversing time. Um, here's how, here's, here's the homework I believe that we should have uh, for this week. Is, uh, it's simple, and we'll put it up on the, on the Facebook site as well. I just believe you need to have a frank conversation about what coming together in your life looks like and what even fulfilling the promises of God look like in your life as a couple together. That might be beyond scary to some of us. And if you need, like, if you can't do it, that's fine. But begin to have the conversation because once you know, now it's a whole different conversation you're going to be having. This is a different perspective and I wish we had the time. Like I realized when we initially set out this, this, this course or whatever, I realized very quickly, like an hour and a half is not a lot of time to make a point and to really show and unpack and, and teach it. And so, um, but we're, we're given this as a taster. So there'll be future things. If you need more resources, uh, you want to future study this stuff, uh, there's tons of stuff on it. Uh, but the stuff I just, just shared at the end, that's something God's doing in our church right now. So no one, no one talks about that. And so this is, this is something of how do you go through life in the midst of suffering and in the midst of pain. And that's something we wanted to move towards. So I just, I just love and bless you guys. Uh, I'd like to uh, close in prayer. Do you want to close in prayer? Uh, and, um, and we'll hang back uh, just a tiny bit here if, uh, if anybody has any questions. Or if you want to email us. Uh, I am going to Africa uh, tomorrow. But uh, on the way, when I come back or whatever. If you need more time to talk about some of this stuff. Or if I hit a button that was just too awkward. Or because of pain you might have misheard something I said. 
Uh, and I wasn't intentionally planning. Maddie and I had different plans. Uh, but I really felt that, that we just needed to explore the broad view really quickly uh, because we have a very broad group. And so then we will move closer together. And, if, and this will be recorded uh, and on the um, website so that we can, um, if you need to listen to some of us again or if you want to uh, really get the quote that I said and then get really mad at me, uh, that would be wonderful too. Not. Do you want to pray? Okay, Jesus, we just thank you for the gift of marriage and the gift of sex in marriage. And I just pray that you would cover each life here and each marriage as they leave this place and that you would just yeah, help them grow closer to each other, Jesus, that you would give them, give them the courage and the strength and the hope to believe again for areas where they have felt that it's too difficult or too scary and that you would just cover everybody that they wouldn't be under any attack or under any condemnation after this, that you would just yeah, let us go in the hope and the joy that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.